So a tip of the cap to the United States. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Solkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. This week, we're joined by some friends from the Behemican podcast uh, and members of the History Podcasters Network. So introduce yourselves, guys. Okay. Well, uh, it's been great to be on your show, guys. Uh, I'm Pete Coleman, the host of Bohemican Podcast. And I'm Travis Dow, and I also do the History of Alchemy. Welcome to Texas, gentlemen. (laughs) Virtually. (laughs) Great to be back. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most defining characteristics of Texas is that it has long been a place where people from all over the world come to seek a new life. They have come as individuals. They have come as groups. And the impact they have on the history and culture of Texas is as strong as the impact Texas has on all of us. This week, we talk about the history of the Czechs in the Lone Star State. But first, what's your favorite flavor of kolache? Red. <laughs> <laughs> and I have, Travis. And I, have to, I have to go with poppy seed. And, and the reason we, I think the reason we picked those is that those are the two flavors that you see at like the really small bakeries. So those those are the two flavors That's that survived it. communism, I'd say. Yeah. What exactly oh, wow. is red flavor? <laughs> Malina is probably raspberry? It, it's mark? a berry a flavor of sorts. And, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and something with high fructose corn syrup, like, I'm sure. Kind of like Big Red, and t- the, the soda Big Red. Nobody's quite sure what Big Red flavor is. Yeah, it's delicious is what it is. <laughs> exactly. uh, a lot of Czech grandmothers rolling around in the grave right now. Yeah. Well, listen, you, in Texas, the, the art of the kolache is not dead. I am going to just say um, the uh, the delightful, smooth uh, fruit flavor. I, I like peach, uh, like a really well-done peach kolache. Well, I was going to say um, up until a couple of weeks ago, I would have picked the uh, just a normal cream cheese kolache with the, the cream cheese filling. But uh, when we were driving through West couple weeks ago on the way to my grandmother's house actually on the way back from my grandmother's house we stopped at the check stop there in west and they have a jalapeno and cheese kolache which is kind of a you know a texan twist on the the traditional pastry now you might think it's just jalapeno cheese sausage in there but they take jalapeno sausage with a slice of jalapeno in there with it and cover the whole thing in cheese and then stuff all that into the pastry. And so can I, can I change delicious. my answer now? Can I change my answer to that? <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds good just talking about it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll pick up a lot more. I think, I think we, we pretty much it. say that Czechs here would not, in, in uh, Czech Republic, would not uh, do well with the jalapenos. This, uh, this is not a very, uh, the spiciness is not a part of the life here, which I know is making a lot of Texans like, what? But uh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we kind of take things a little bit more mild here in the Czech Republic. Well, well, I'm going to go a little far, further away from the Czech Republic and, and double down on the Texas kolache. Uh, the best kolache I've ever had had biscuits and gravy, sausage and gravy in it. <laughs> oh, wow. And it had gravy <laughs> and sausage inside the kolache, and it was delicious. It's, a, it's at a place called the Kolache Factory. But today at Bucky's, when I exchanged dogs with my good buddy Mike, uh, he uh, I went in and saw, I didn't get to try it, but I want to try it. It's a boudin kolache which boudin is a rice sausage, a Cajun rice sausage um, with lots of bits of things that you don't really want to know what's in it. But I think that probably would be 
the most anti-check uh, collection that exists. <laughs> okay, I think there's a lot of her- there's a lot of people who are screaming heresy. What you're saying, Sean? Well, yeah. uh, tell you what, listeners, uh, go to Twitter, go to Facebook, go to our contact page at brainstable.com. Send us what your favorite kolache is, and we'll we'll share some of those on the air. In our past episodes, we've talked about the experience of large immigrant groups into Texas and the impact they've had on Texas history and culture. This includes the Poles, this includes the French, and we've talked about the Germans as well as other groups. Another group that has had a very strong influence on the culture of our great state is that of the Czechs. Any Texan who has taken the trip from Dallas to Austin is very familiar with the famous Czech Stop and the Little Czech Bakery in the central Texas town of West, but what most people know about the Czech experience sadly stops with those delicious kolache. They are missing out on so much fascinating history. We wanted to find out more about what makes up the full story of these hardy Bohemians, Moravians, and Silesians who traveled to the other side of the world to find a new life on the edge of the frontier. So we reached out to Travis and Peter, who are the hosts, as we said, of the Bohemican podcast and the History of Alchemy podcast. And the Bohemican podcast is the history of the Czech people. And so we asked them to help us put this story together. So Peter and Travis, who exactly are the Czechs? And what was the political and social situation in Europe that spurred the earliest groups to settle in Texas? Well, guys, the Czechs are basically Bohemians, Moravian, Salatians, and even some Slovaks, of course. And the Slovaks... Uh, and, and the Slovaks, of course, you know, part of a, a different country now, but had their own sort of language and a little bit more of a, a background uh, with Catholic, uh, strong Catholicism. Central Europe, east east of Germany, south of Poland, north of Austria, and west of Slovakia, that's kind of the area we're talking about right here. And what is now the Czech Republic was also directly under Austrian rule for centuries. And Slovakia was directly under Hungarian rule for even longer, almost a millennium. So together they were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire until 1918. My question is, is why are there so many Czechs in Texas today? Uh, And what is it about that late 1840s that first spurred on the first waves of immigration? Because we did an earlier episode about my history and my people, the with the Poles that came to Texas uh, slightly after that is part of this sort of immigration. And it, it kind of stopped. And there's not nearly as large a Polish presence in Texas as there is a Czech presence today. Well, you know, I would, you, you mentioned this too. Uh, you know, my, my people were actually from Ostfriesland in northern Germany. And uh, they came over uh, in the in the mid eighteen uh, hundreds, and it was a trickle as well in the eighteen forties. I think it was a big migration, especially people in Central Europe, to leave because of political strife, uh, famine issues. Uh, it it all kind of combined with uh, with certain things at, at that time in the eighteen forties. So it was a trickle. So what usually happened was there'd be one person from a family that was brave enough to go to the United States and then start and establish themselves, and then write letters home saying, "Okay." Save enough money for the ship. Get on over here within two or three years. I'll be waiting for you. And these communities would start. Uh, the Austrian community in, in Illinois, where my family comes from, um, uh, they started with a trickle as well, right off the Mississippi near St. Louis, uh, and they came through New Orleans. Uh, so this was very true, I think, for a lot of the Czechs that were coming and trying to get away uh, from this Aust- Austrian-Hungarian rule or try to find a better life in the United States. And uh, they didn't go much further than the uh, port, the port of entry, and just stayed in Texas. And 1848 is a big year in Europe, and especially in Central Europe, because of 
the failure of all the Republican revolutions throughout the continent. Absolutely. It, it was a big uh, issue here in Prague, even. Uh, there were revolts in Prague. Uh, there were you know issues uh, that were going on within the Prussian uh, uh, area, the Prussian states, and Travis can probably jump a little more on that issue. But uh, it was a, a point of of change. A lot of that change was kind of squashed a little bit through the 1840s going to the 1850s and then uh, revived again towards the end of the end of the 19th century. Yeah. So, you know, they had a reason and the capability to leave. What made them choose Texas? Well, you know, I would say it was it was the farmlands. I, I would say the cheap farmland. Uh, that was one of the biggest things that uh, that would really inspire many immigrants from leaving Europe was that they weren't under a so-called rule of of landlords or or, or uh, having to report and be basically feudal farmers. Uh, they could actually have their own land themselves. And Czechs at the time were often farmers who came from a very agricultural based society, uh, second class citizens in the Austro Hungarian Empire with little to no room for advancement. You have you have to kind of look at this in the sense that the Bohemian and Moravian people were treated as the lowest level of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. You would have the Viennese, you'd have the people from Vienna and Austria, the well-to-do musicians and artists and, and people that made the empire move. And then you would have the Hungarians that also in Budapest that would also be uh, part of that same ilk. Then you would have the workers. Uh, as the Industrial Revolution got kicking later in the century, um, they would be the, the people that would make the engine move, would be the Moravians and the, and the, and the, uh, and the Bohemians. So they were the workers, and they didn't really have a, a big say. So having a chance to go to America and start brand new uh, and start your own farm, that was, there was nothing better. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a lot like the same reasons that brought the other immigrant groups to Texas. Well, again, again, kind of expand on that. Uh, why were they considered second-class citizens? Well, Travis, yeah, so, maybe we could talk about this. Travis, you, we've talked about this on numerous shows, and um, there are many reasons why there was a sort of second-class citizenry. But uh, Travis, maybe you can take this one. Yeah, because we've brought up on the show before that, like even in Prague, um, at the turn of the century, Prague was kind of split into, um, not officially and not formally, but the society was split into German speaking and Czech speaking parts of town. And they were always tried, you know, they tried to see each other as equals and, you know, as, and, and they did, and there wasn't a lot of, um, uh, even like nationalism at the time, this was before that, or when it just first started. But the fact is that in the Austro-Hungarian empire, even in Prague, if you wanted to be anybody you know, anyone that wanted to be anyone had to speak German. And uh, the Czechs were conscripted into the Austrian army and had to fight Austrian wars, even if they didn't want to. And most Bohemians, and not not necessarily Moravians, which uh, we'll talk about in a second, but most Bohemians were Protestant. And the Austrians, their, their overlords, their landlords were Catholic. So, um, yeah, I mean, we talked about on the Bohemian Bohemian, we talked about the Hussite Wars and the Czech Rebellion against the Austrians. Uh, they were the Czechs threw some Austrians out of a window, which is known as the second defenestration. Um, but but, you know, since then, that was 1618. So since uh, from uh, 1621 until 1918, they were under Austrian rule. So, you know, after the revolts in the, you know, like you mentioned, 1848, after this, they finally just had enough. And they said, well, in, in Texas, actually, we have, a, you know, we can speak Czech more freely than we can at home in Bohemia, where, you know, they were encouraged to speak German. Well, you know, you got to think about this, guys, in the sense that 
what makes you your your, your nationality? And I think a lot of it has to do with your language, sometimes even your religion and religious belief systems that kind of bind you together. And uh, there's that dichotomy, that difference between some Czechs, especially that were, were Catholic, or many that were Protestant, that wanted that freedom of religion that only the United States would really, really give you. So a tip of the cap to the United States for you know, uh, really doing the great PR work to say, hey, you can worship the way you want to worship. You can come over here. You can have some land. And uh, that was just really enticing. And we talk about the the trying to get the Czech language again. Um, Travis, there's a great story that you mentioned on one of our podcasts where uh, down uh, in downtown near Winchester Square, there's a, a walkway today. It was very full of tourists. But one side of the street uh, was basically your Czech side of the street, where you might have Czech language for the names of stores, yeah. and the other side going the other way was German-based uh, uh, businesses. Yeah. And so if, what if you, you want to know if you're if you're ever in Prague, if you know if you see the big Tesco on Narodny Trida, Narodny Trida, which means like National Street, that was the Czech side. And that goes up to the river uh, one way, going straight west, I guess. And, and going straight north, going to the river, was Naprikopje, which is w- w- at the time they called Amgraben. And that's where it means like at the creek. <laughs> and that and that's the German side. And you'd have all the German shops. And, it, you know, they both started at Wenceslav Square and they both went to the river. But it was it was segregation. It was like self-imposed apartheid in a way. Well, and and there's. There's not a lot of land in in Central Europe that's not wasn't divided up. You cannot by the 1800s. just go off and buy a ranch and you know yeah. buy some cat, heads of cattle and start a ranch in Bohemia. No, no, and, sir, you cannot do that. And that was the <laughs> nice thing about Texas in 1848 yep. was there was lots of land if you didn't mind the Comanche and the rattlesnakes. Well, right. Yep. <laughs> let, let, let's so let's take it back a bit from 1848. Let how did this connection between Europe and Texas really start. Okay, yeah, cuz um right. So the Czechs weren't the first. Uh, like like Pete mentioned, like his his ancestors even um the Germans kind of started this and in, in 1830 there was actually an organization called the Verein zum Schutz deutscher Einwanderer, the institution to the protection of the German immigrants, I guess. And um you guys actually discussed this group during your episode on the port of Indianola. And um, this organization was basically set up to, you know, smooth the, the transition to help German uh, investors find, you know, the, the colonies that need the money and organize all this, organize colonists, um, you know, organize the land, make it more profitable. And, um, you know, the co- colonists were not hard to find. And so the checks followed. Yeah. And that was that was Prince Solms Bromfels. Yeah, and Sean and I were just uh-huh. talking about this the other day. It was really interesting that uh, of all the history books point to um, the difficulty with the Comanche, and there's they're always um, the the foils and the villains and so many old westerns, and yet the Germans just came over and negotiated a, a peaceful treaty. Everybody respected it, and uh, they lived in harmony for uh, quite a while. Right, the, yep. the, the lands of the so, German colonists are deep in Com- what we call Comancheria, which is like deep central Texas where the Comanche roamed and hunted. And uh, these these communities that were founded were safe from attack, essentially. So kudos to you, Germany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so I, t- I tell you guys, that the one thing I, I got a chance to do this year was to go find my family roots in, uh, in Ostfriesland. And I went to probably one of the best museums on immigration to the United States in Bremerhaven. 
And it was amazing to talk uh, things I learned about why people, and this is also for some of the Czechs it probably had the same sort of influence, but the nation states and the nationhood of Prussia coming together as one German nation in the 1870s. Is that right, Travis? Around the yeah, 1870s? 18, yep. um, before that, there were so many of these um, na- these these states fighting each other, and there was famine, and there was all these other problems going on at once. It was a trickle, and just like for the Czechs, it just became a, a situation where it was uh, a, just a flood of immigrants coming through at certain points. And, the, and many of the uh, the Czechs and the Germans would come through the port of New Orleans, and that was it. They they would stop there, or they would go up the Mississippi and, and settle for good. And uh, it really became part yeah. of the, the tapestry of the United States. In fact, for, for those of you that want to go see some of the, the first ports of entry or some of the first um, people that came across, way back in 1823, we have Carl Postel, uh, Charles Sealsfeld, um, who visited the Texas-Louisiana border. Uh, we have Frederick Lemsky, who arrived in 1836. Yeah, um, he played the fife in, yep. in the Texas band at the Battle of San Jacinto. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was a Czech. Yeah, Bohumir Menzel was a Catholic priest who moved to New Braunfels, which was a you know German settlement in Texas. So that was in 1840. So we're already starting to get to the time period where we see more. But then, uh, probably most most known, if you if you're interested in the you know Czech American history, is Reverend Josef Arnošt Bergman, and he can best be described as the father of Czech immigration to Texas. Let's say I, it's very interesting to me that so many of the sort of, sort, of, sort of fathers of immigration into Texas were actually priests and ministers and reverends. So the, the, right. the father of Polish immigration into Texas uh, was uh, a, a Catholic priest who who came to Texas, and uh, the early German, uh, earliest Germans to come to Texas were were priests as well. So well, and we covered that when we talked about uh, Spain, early Spain, and and, yes, and very true. early Texas. You know the the that's the, right. The missions in yep. Texas were a big piece of that as well. I'm I'm living right next to the Santa Clara Mission, which is the same story. The first, you know, Europeans here were it was first Catholic missions, a string of them, and then others. Yes. For, for that's in yeah. Calif- California. Well, which, uh, yep. You know, regard yeah, is this West kind of goes. Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the West Coast of Texas. <laughs> well, it, it, West we, Coast of Texas. We mentioned it before that the religious aspect here in in Bohemia probably led to a lot of that. Uh, even though austria hungary uh, was was the empire was of Catholic origin. Um, because of the Hussite Wars and all the things that were happening to kind of split different cities and townships in this in this uh, re- what is now the Czech Republic, um, if you were uh, living in a Protestant area, you were not welcome as a Czech as a, as, a, as a Catholic. So there might be another reason for you to say, you know what, I need to move, <laughs> I need to get out and yeah, start that's new. True. And and maybe your order was saying, you know what, we want you to go to the New World. We want you to spread Catholicism there. That was part of the issue as well. So, you know, I think it's probably a great segue to getting into, uh, you know, who was uh, Reverend Bergman and, and some of these, these you know, religious uh, um, sort of uh, uh, folks that were trying to spread the word and start a new life. <laughs> so tell us about Reverend Bergman.
Okay. Joseph Bergman was uh, central for pulling the checks from Europe and evangelizing how great Texas was. If you can imagine that, a great PR agent there for, for the great state of Texas. He arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1850 to minister to German Protestants. He sort of uh, was, a, was set up in a shop in, in Cat Spring in Austin County and from there started telling people about the opportunities that were there. In fact, he wrote a single letter published to the uh, Morevsky uh, Neveni. Uh, people back home in Bohemia and Moravia started noticing this for sure, and and for reasons that we said we talked about, you know, the lack of land, social uprising. It just seemed like a, a perfect fit for many people to take the chance. Now, you know, keep in mind for this for a minute. It wasn't easy. These folks had to find get get their their stuff together, leave everything behind, get to a port of exit, uh, uh, most likely in in Germany, and then leave for for. A month or so, a month and a half to get back to the United, to get over to the United States, and some people didn't make it. So it was a great deal of courage to do this. You know, people, um, the first immigrants that were were chiefly poor laborers uh, from the area around Nepomuki and uh, Chimera, and I'm um, sorry, uh, Chimena. How do you say that, Travis? Chermna? Chermna? Yeah. yeah. Ne- ne- uh, Nepomuki and Chermna in uh, northeastern Bohemia. And then on August 19th, 1851, headed by Josef Silar, 16 families headed out for Hamburg, Liverpool, New Orleans, and eventually Galveston, Texas. Dangerous and unhealthy traveling, of course, conditions were, were part of the deal. And uh, this took 17 weeks, which is actually pretty long for the time, to get on over there. Travis? In fact, the voyage, the trip from you know Hamburg to Liverpool to New Orleans to Galveston was so dangerous that only half of it, half of the number made it. Oh, and but the, but regardless of that, you know there was a second voyage two years later, and this was le- led by Josef Lishikar, who was influenced by Bergman's letters, letters again, and he had also helped organize the first group. So he was kind of the the uh, the guy on the Czech side, you know, doing things, and he decided to to head the second voyage. And in the following years, many groups of immigrants came from Moravia, uh, particularly in the far eastern part of the province. And um, so Moravia is the poorest part of the Czech Republic. It is also kind of the most um, rural and in some parts like Ostrava and and Brno are the most industrial. Um, But that also takes a toll on the countryside around that area. It it is it is definitely the most, um, you know, economically depressed uh, part and has always been. And the further east you go. (laughs) on a bad day it's it's ostrava so these are definitely people these are definitely people who would want open land and yeah and and another thing is that if um as bohemians so bohemians were were slowly getting more autonomy during this time in the 19th century but but the the difference is is that uh, bohemians were for the rural hussites they were protestants whereas moravians to this day are still catholic so Here's an interesting uh, twist of the the Czechs in Texas is that often they have a Moravian, if they still speak Czech, they have a Moravian dialect and there's more Catholics than, uh, you know, than would be by chance. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, but, but, you know, they came through Galveston and kind of set up shop there and, and, uh, spread from there. So, well, I, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine Pittsburgh made me think like, I can imagine being a poor Farmer in downtown Pittsburgh would be a very hard life, and that would Texas be a would rough, look yeah. much not. Well, so, no, if you're no, listening to this yeah. in Pittsburgh right now, and you're trying, you're eking out a living growing tomatoes on a corner, you should come to Texas, get some land. You know, th- th- that's that's the funny part about it is, you know, th- 
you're talking about the 1830s, everything was bucolic. There, there was there was just a few places here and there that were cities, but everything else was just very rural. And then the Industrial Revolution takes hold. We get trains, we get we get uh, manufacturing, and then all of a sudden you've got a place like Ostrava, in in the eastern part of the of, of what is now Czech Republic, that is as becomes basically you know the uh, uh, the, the mining and and uh, steel forging area of the entire empire for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah. Pittsburgh becomes a, an industrial seat for the United States. There, there are parallels. So, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like Birmingham and London in England as yeah. well. Birmingham yep, yep. and Manchester. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned earlier uh, West Texas, which is where the, the Czech stop is in Central Texas. Uh, it's just north of Waco. Um, and that's a lot of people, especially in the Dallas area, that's what they think of when they think of Czechs in Texas. But you know, where did they originally settle? Because that's pretty far inland to pick as your first settlement. Well, it is, and 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 one thing that uh, we we definitely want to talk about. There was a difference uh, between what what most Anglo uh, folks did when they came over um, that they decided to settle, you know, closer to the rivers. Not the Czechs. They decided to go a completely different pattern uh, and move away from the rivers and into Central Texas. Uh, so there were many more merchants that moved into these towns as well, and and so they kind of followed that pattern. Uh, but you know, Central Texas counties of Austin, Fayette, Levica, uh, and Washington all had Czech settlements, and Fayette County in particular became the established as the center of Czech population in Texas. For non-Texans, this is generally an area west of the Brazos River and east of San Antonio in Austin, about midway between Houston and Austin, of course. West wasn't exactly founded until the 1880s, but was later waves of Czech immigrants moved in further north to uh, in search for open land kind of helped build this up a little bit. Yeah, and that's actually um, my wife's family is down there in the uh, uh, Clute, Lake Jackson, Richmond area and kind of, um, you know, that whole west of Houston region. And they, they're Czech descent. So. Yeah, it, well, the largest concentrations of Czechs were in Fayette County, in towns of uh, Dubina, Bluff, Mulberry, which is uh, now known as Praha, which is the Czech word for Prague, as we have here. You know, Catholic Czech uh, Texans today honor St. Mary's Church in 1865 in, in Praha as their mother parish. So, yeah, it is, it, it is interesting to move away from the rivers. I don't think I, I have really heard that of, of a lot of immigrants well, usually the Germans, want to be on the river. Yeah. The Germans did that as well, and and the Poles did, and I think a large part of it was probably to to just create more cultural uh, cohesion uh, and not dilute their communities with you know. Plus, the a lot of the land in the river bottoms had been already settled by Anglo's and by uh, yep. Tejanos already up to that point. So, so it was already know, taken. Yeah, it I was guess. already taken, yeah. right? And and the land, the lands that they settled, like we said, was deep in Comancheria. It wasn't land that was, it was desired by the Anglo settlers, but it was not land they were quite ready to fight for. And the the Germans and the Czechs and the Poles were were differentiated enough that that the native tribes recognized they weren't they they weren't the same as the Anglo's were. Plus, they weren't trying to kill them, so it helped <laughs> with that. That's well, a plus. By the way, Peter, I. I love the. I've always loved the fact about the Czech about the Czechs that they have a word for throwing someone out of the window. Yes, defenestration. Defenestration is one of the greatest words ever created, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> definitely yes. one of my favorite German words. <laughs> well, the, if you if you go if you go into Prague Castle, you can go actually to the room where the first defenestration was that started off the Thirty Years' War. 
It yeah. changed Europe completely. And um, the, what happened was he, they threw two of the Catholics out the window. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't kill them. They landed on a, a trash heap of dung and trash yeah. and bounced their way to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see, it depends on the, the Catholic paintings you, you see at the day. There are Catholic paintings. You can see angels carrying these poor little uh, Catholics to freedom. If they're Protestants, <laughs> they're just kind of like, you know, watering in the, in the horse dung, trying to get away sheepishly. Well, so, <laughs> so one of the things that I found out about, um, we talked about the story of Panama Maria and the poles is that, uh, you know, these people came over and they basically lived in dirt holes in the ground with these weird little thatch roofs over and they went from nothing. <laughs> but, uh, a, a second wave that came over of, uh, a lot of stone workers. And so there are these very ornate, beautiful Catholic churches, uh, that were built. And, uh, and much like you talk about when the city of Praha and these kinds of things, interesting when I talk to people about Texas, they'll say, Oh, you know, Texas, uh, and you pull out the map and they go, yeah, they think it's too much cowboys and people go, well, look, you know, here's Kosciuszko, here's Praha here, you know, here's uh Fredericksburg. And you start looking these are all these weird, uh, European named towns all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's this infrastructure that's been built by these people. And, and I think one of the things that the Czechs built like the uh, poles were these very ornate churches. And so there's a lot of uh, hand painted murals and they're just really beautiful painted Catholic churches. You know, we, we're maybe experienced more, like you said, the Moravian uh, dialect and a lot of the Catholics, but you know, was this mostly a Catholic group that came over? Was it with the ones that made it here to Texas? Is there, is there, oh, what's the word I'm thinking? Is there, is there a big difference between the, the yeah. Czech, Czechs here versus the Czechs in, in Europe that stayed? Yeah. So, so there is. And there's also a difference in demographics between uh, Czechs in Texas and Czechs uh, in the United States as a whole. And that difference is, is that a lot more Moravians for some reason went to Texas. And um, in in Bohemia, uh, many more are either, well, nowadays they're just straight atheists, but at the time, um, they were basically all Protestants. Uh, they were Hussites, whereas Moravia was much more overwhelmingly um Catholic and even even towards the turn of the century and even you know throughout uh, the first republic and communism and all that 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 pattern stayed that pattern has been around for uh, since the 15th century really but so when they started to come to Texas so the the first Czech Protestant service was held in 1855 near the present location of the Fayetteville Brethren Church and the Protestants were followers of this 15th century reformist bohemian priest Jan Hus and who we've, you know, we've done guest shows on. We've talked about, uh, I think, three or four episodes on them altogether. And these were known as Hussites in Europe, or the Brethren, as they kind of called themselves. And these Czech Protestants eventually established, um, you know, also established themselves in Texas. And they, they have a denomination called the Unity of the Brethren, if they're still around. And the first Brethren congregated around 1864. Yeah, 1864 in Vesely, and the town is on the Austin-Washington County line, and today it's known as Wesley, but uh, Vesely actually is is the Czech word for happy, so frankly, I would have kept it, but... You know, Wesley's nice too. But well, there's already um, a happy Texas. Yeah. But so. oh, okay. Well, maybe maybe it has the same the same story. It used to be Vesely, but uh, so the difference between Texan Czechs, uh, you know, as the the demographics as a whole, the you know, statistically speaking, is that perhaps as many as ninety percent of the Czechs 
um, who immigrated were Catholics in their homeland. So, you know, basically Moravians mostly. And um, so when they came, they still maintained their allegiance to the Catholic church in Texas. So there's, uh, there are these independent congregations. The first one at Wesley, um, you know, which is the unity of brethren. They, that's, that's what was officially uh, named unity of the brethren in 1903. And then, um, and if you're curious about that aspect of history, that was mainly through the efforts of Reverend Adolf Klumsky, so members of this group were, you know, part of the tradition that were were being suppressed by the Austrians, um, you know, for for centuries, but but much heavily or much more heavily in the past. Um, but regardless, so so the the Protestants were being repressed by Austrians, um, and that's why you see so many of them, you know, in the United States as a whole. But the the Texan patterns were different. So ninety percent ended up being Catholic. So we we talked earlier about. The, that the dialect that the text Germ- Texas Czechs spoke, uh, we actually in Texas have a unique German dialect that evolved in the German communities. So did the same thing happen to the Czechs in Texas? Oh, okay. You know, so we talk about difference of dialects. Um, usually people bring that with them uh, as, as part of their culture. Now that does kind of watered down within a generation or two when people become Americanized. Uh, and you can see that in almost any kind of uh, immigrant group from around the world that uh, by the, by the sec- even the second generation, third generation, they may not even speak the home language anymore. But uh, certain things are left over. That first generation that comes over, especially from, from Bohemia, if you're Bohemian, you've got that certain sort of dialect of, and certain words. If you're closer to Moravia and you're closer to, to the Slovaks, you're going to have a, a very distinctive sort of uh, difference within certain words that aren't in the other language or just the way you say them. Uh, if you were to come here today in Czech Republic, you could uh, a, a, Czech, a native Czech would say, say within three seconds, Oh, you must be from Slovakia, <laughs> right? Um, it's very similar to someone in the United States saying, "Oh, you're from Boston, Massachusetts, aren't you? You must be from Boston, New York." Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different you know, to to hear that sort of dialect difference. But as Travis was saying before, a huge amount of Moravians, especially Catholic Moravians that came over, are gonna are gonna come to Texas at this time, and they're gonna hold on to their dialects. They're gonna hold on to their, the way they say things, at least for several generations. Uh, maybe my question to you guys is. Uh, what type of things are left over in in Czech when it comes to these type of uh, dialects or leftover language from the Czech Republic? There is actually two uh, newspapers. One's a weekly uh, newspaper, and I believe one is a daily uh, in Central Texas that are published in Czech uh, in the the Czech dialect of uh, the te- Czech Texas dialect. So nice. there is still efforts to keep that dialect, maybe not necessarily spoken as much as. Uh, uh, in writing uh, and in reading that dialect active. And, you know, you kind of go back to, to, to Wesley, uh, which became Wesley. And that's probably because the, the, the cowboys that came through couldn't really pronounce it the way the Czechs did. So yeah. they just said, how do you spell that? Oh, well, Wesley, it's we'll Wesley. Just call it Wesley. Yeah. yeah. So one, one little point of interest too, uh, I think there's a really interesting phenomenon that happens when languages come to America, particularly uh, non-English ethnic languages came to America. So I know for the Poles, the Silesian dialect is a very specific dialect in in Poland. But when it came here, it's essentially put in a time capsule because only the old people speak it and the kids learn it from the old people and it doesn't evolve as a language because it isn't 
a day. It, it's used daily in those small communities, but they don't evolve the same ways. So what you're really hearing is you're hearing something very close to the 1850 dialect from a very yeah. peculiar region of Poland. And if you go to, uh, for anyone who speaks French, if you go to uh, New Orleans and you hear the the true Creole, you're just like, wow, what is that? Or yep. if you go to Quebec, to Canada, you know, I do oh, yeah. a lot of work in time and spend a lot of time in Canada. If you go to Quebec, Quebecois is very different from modern French. And and mm-hmm. fr- people from France say, oh, it's, you know, it's it's totally different language. It's, it's like yeah. its own thing. So I think that's probably a big, you know, but then it becomes, well, it's not, it's not Czech. It's Texas Czech now. So yeah, absolutely. Texas German. It, yeah. It, it would have German th- probably because in the 19th century, there was a strong effort to clean up Czech and remove German influence from it. And um, so depending on wh- what point in that process people came over, then yeah, like you said, it would almost be like a time capsule. So you would hear um, even, even in written Czech, there was German words to spell the Czech way, you know, mm-hmm. spelled Czech phonetically. Mm-hmm. So you'd probably hear that. You'd hear some, you know, an archaic form of Moravian Czech, which Moravian already sounds different. And then, you know, filtered through Texas for three, four generations. Um, yeah, there's, well, there's, yeah. With, the, with Texas German, there's, with Texas German, there's, there's a softening of 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 accent, uh, smoothing out to match a little more closely English. Uh, there's a lot of borrowed words too, especially there's borrowed words from Spanish. So I would presume right. that, yeah. that the same thing would happen with Texas chat. Absolutely. I, I, yep. I guess I would have to ask. You know what we say here when you greet somebody on the street is "Dobre den," which is "Good afternoon." Um, the Texas check would be Dobre den, y'all. Would that be part of it? <laughs> howdy. Howdy. Sounds good. Howdy is universal. Yeah. The Can't universal go wrong howdy. with howdy or y'all. So just a, just a quick note to anyone out there listening. If you're a Texas check speaker or if you know one or have a friend, family, relative, uh, drop us a line. Let us know because we'd actually, we'd love to, to find out more about, you know, what is Texas check and what uh, kind of how it, how it lives today. And, yep. and, and better than that, if you actually speak some Czech, would you mind sending us an audio file of your, oh, yeah. <laughs> of what that sounds like? Yeah. <laughs> Especially if your grandmother spoke it. Um, so we've talked uh, previously on our show about the experiences of the Poles and the Germans during the American Civil War, uh, especially in Texas. Um, how did the, the Czech immigrants do during that time? Was their their experience similar? Was it different? Well, yeah. So the, yeah, the Czechs uh, either hadn't been there very long or were just coming in right before the Civil War. So I think the best way to describe it is that they were kind of awkward. Like they didn't maybe fully <laughs> understand the conflict between the North and South. And, yeah. and, and partially maybe because of this or, um, and just other reasons that the, this was maybe the biggest, um, you know, kind of pronounced friction between Czechs and the Anglo-Americans. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and just because like any other foreigner, they were just kind of suspect at the time. It was, you know, it war was happening and these guys, they had a funny accent and, um, you know, who are they anyways? And that, that just happened to all foreigners during basically every war. So yeah, that, that happened here also. Um, but but significantly, I think it's it's important to note that none of them had any allegiance to the institution of slavery. Like slavery just wasn't a, a thing, not for moral reasons necessarily, but because just the whole concept of slavery was 
different um, to the Czechs, you know, family core farm, you know, family farming um, intensive way of doing it. And and uh, not to mention, they all came over with empty pockets. It's not like they could just get off the boat and, and buy a half dozen slaves. So they just, you know, they just it just wasn't a part of of, of their culture at all in any way, really. So well, they, and what, they were one step away from slavery as serfs, you know, yeah. in the in the 17th century. So it's, you know, no, they were they weren't about to go <laughs> take sides on an issue like that. There was just not that many of them either. Uh, the Germans had been around a little bit longer. They, right. they took the brunt of the the abuse from. Uh, yep. And the question of their loyalties. So. Well, I, I think Czechs would have been just been lumped in with Germans at that point. Yeah. Because yeah. it would, you know, they would have seen them as, you know, funny speaking Austrians. You know, I mean, it's just, right. yeah. Even in the U.S. census, you often see them as, it was hard to note because you see them as Austrians. They're just marked as Austrians. Mm-hmm. Yet, so, yet at the yeah. same time, as, as the 18th century or as the 19th century is kind of moving forward and Czechs are going to uh, industrial towns such as Chicago, um, you know, you're going to see, especially Illinois being Lincoln State, um, you're going to have, you know, poss- possibly some Czechs and immigrants that are going to be put into the Union Army here and there. We saw that with, with some Germans on occasion, too, in, for the Northern uh, um, Armies. But, uh, yeah, if, if you were, you know, didn't speak the language, it was kind of hard to kind of be drafted into this and take orders. Well, we <laughs> yeah, found that you know. there's a there's a great story we talked about in the Pan Maria episode where uh, there were cases of these guys basically just been off the boat a couple of years. They got drafted into the Southern Army. They got captured as prisoners of war. The Union said, well, you don't even hardly speak English and you don't own slaves. You're just new to this country. Right. We're going to go ahead and put you, you know what? We're going to take you out of this prisoner war camp. We're going to put you in the Union Army. Mm-hmm. And then they went back into battle. They got captured again because they were horribly unlucky. And then they ended up in Southern prisoner of war camps for the Randall War. And it was just like they fought on both sides. They didn't really wow. have, you Amazing. know, it was just not having <laughs> yeah. wow. nearly as much of a dog in the fight. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's jump past all the Civil War stuff. Uh, now, for the Poles, it seems there was a kind of a big push, and then things sort of slowed down in Europe, and and that that immigration stream slowed. But for the Czechs, it didn't. There were there were additional waves, and what kept the door open for the Czechs that it didn't keep it open so much for the Poles? Well, it seems uh, one one more bigger uh, cause was was because of the marketing now was very profitable for shipping and rail and and companies to uh, help out with immigrants to make it easier to get over. Austrians, of course, made it easier for the Czechs to leave. They didn't want you anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> head on head, head, head on west if you would, please, guys. Uh, especially if you were to prove that you already have relatives that were there, uh, which they did. And in Texas, more people came because of that. Uh, by 1900, the number of foreign-born Czechs in the states had climbed to 9,204, and by 1910, here listen to this number: 15,074. So a huge bump. And by the 20th century, uh, uh, approximately 250 Czech communities had been settled in Texas, especially by the Black Band Prairie areas that were farming, uh, where it looked very profitable for many people. Uh, you know, by the 1990 census, we take it a little bit further, of course, in the 20th century, the Texas was, was listed as some of the uh, Czech ancestry numbered around 282,000 uh, people. So that really is, is a big climb by the end of the 20th century. Uh, other sources, including statewide groups called the Texans for Czech Ancestry, say the numbers are closer to 1 million. However, the impact on Texas culture is different to convey through certain numbers, of course. Uh, not until 1920, after the formation of Czechoslovakia, did the U.S. Census on Immigration Services use the word Czech designation 
Um, often they use Austrian or maybe have listed mm -hmm. uh, in different ways in other U.S. Do documentations. Uh, this is, you know, really kind of confusing. When a census worker comes to you, <laughs> you know, they're A, probably not going to understand your name. They're going to misspell it. Um, they're going to not understand your occupation, maybe, if you still have a very thick accent. And they're just going to do a quick sort of deal and say, you know what, you're Austrian. We're done. <laughs> or maybe even German. You well, know, and move on. Uh, and, and not to derail this here a little bit, but I really do have a, like, it is kind of an interesting thing of what Czechos, like the idea of Czech, Czechoslovakia and that name. Is that a label that really still carries over anywhere outside of Texas? Yes, yes. Uh, and this is the biggest pet peeve, Travis, do you say a pet, pet peeve of, of most people here were not Czechoslovakia anymore? <laughs> there was something called the Velvet Revolution in 1989. Um, but it, for most, <laughs> most Americans, not just Czech, most Americans say, oh, Czechoslovakia. And they just kind of forget that 20 plus years have happened that uh, yeah. this place has become the Czech Republic yeah. again. And, um, and, they're, and they're, it is more here. It is more in the United States than anywhere else, obviously. But um, I mean, I, and I get the same in California. That's that's no different. But even in even in Germany, it's, you know, let, you see many people that haven't been there, um, even though just because the Iron Curtain was there for so many years, even though it's like a three hour car ride away, nobody's been to Prague, not nobody, but far less than have been to like Portugal or Spain. And even there, you might hear Czechoslovakia mentioned now and then. So it's it's it is strange, like the, you know, the history is kind of slow to catch up. And um, but the Czechs are different people. And the Slovaks are different people. So uh, if you're speaking to an individual, you're either speaking to a Czech or a Slovak. Um, unless, of course, <laughs> the father's one and the mother's other, and they were raised halfway in one and halfway in the other. Then, yeah, they could be Czechoslovak, I guess. But um, those well, technically look, guys, don't the exist. 90, look, the 90s were a blur for a lot of people. <laughs> there was a lot of flannel. Uh, there was grunge rock. There was grunge, grunge rock. Too much grunge. People, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like 1990, people were more interested in Nirvana than they were interested um, in yeah. the fall or, of the what, Berlin Wall. Or they were or flirting with like Ace of Base, and it was just yeah, like yeah. it was a bad time. It's a bad time. Yeah. Right yeah. over. Ace of Base ruined it for everybody. Uh, you yeah. know, I'll tell you guys, there is a very unique, and I'll, I'll make this really brief though, but there's a very unique friendship between the United States and the Czech Republic. Uh, and it goes back to the First Republic uh, in the creation of Czechoslovakia. Um, you know, you had President Masaryk here, who was married to an American wife, was the first president of Czechoslovakia. And the connection with President Woodrow Wilson after the war to help the creation of this state. Uh, was a big sort of friendship level with this. Now, even during World War II, it was a, it, there was there was a, a connection, an underground movement that people would have these homemade radios that even they were taken over by the Germans by the Nazis. The, there would be um, information coming in from London by the Americans and Allied bombers saying, "Hey, we're going to bomb tomorrow in code," so that the that the work the Czech workers would be able to get out in time before the bombing happened. And these 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 towns were industrial, industrialized towns making ball bearings or whatnot. So there was these connections even after the war when communism came through that allowed a lot of Czechs to have this connection with the United States that was very special. And um, I think that uh, one story that we've worked, Travis and I worked on, uh, was the B-17 bombing uh, during World War II of parts of Czech Republic that were occupied by the Nazis. And some of these guys were from Texas that were, you know, that, that were killed on these B-17 crashes. And right. um, yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah, do you remember that, Travis? And, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and a remarkable, remarkable story that that I'm gonna we're gonna be doing at the end of the summer on one of the crashes in Slani. That's just north of Prague, where a B-17 and uh, all ten of the people except one had died on crash on the impact by two Messerschmitts that, that uh, engaged, and it crashed in this Czech town, and. Um, 
everyone died, of course, except for the one guy that, that survived and was taken into a prisoner war camp. And the Czechs very nicely buried the Americans with honor. And the next day, the Nazis came by and said, you can't do that. And then the next day, they put flowers on the graves. The Czechs put flowers on the graves. And one of these guys was from Texas. And uh, it just goes to show you that there was that connection, uh, even by threat of Nazi uh, imprisonment for you know celebrating the lives of these, these combatants. Let's let's take a step back to you mentioned Woodrow Wilson. So let's go back to Woodrow Wilson to the First World War. So the Czechs, it seems to me the Czechs would have a very interesting position. The Czechs in Texas have an interesting position during that war. The Germans, obviously, they're the bad guys. They're the enemies. Uh, you know, the Kaiser, he's the bad guy. And uh, so German Texans were really heavily discriminated against after the U.S. entered the war, especially because of the Zimmerman telegram. That's um, yep. promised that the Kaiser promised Texas back to Mexico. Uh, and so the German Texans were <laughs> badly discriminated against. Uh, well, good luck with that, Mr. Kaiser. Yes, yeah, pretty <laughs> horrifically. But you said that the Czechs, they are not Austrians. And so Germany's ally was the Austrian Empire. But how were the Czech, Czech Texans? Uh, what was their experience during the war? Have you found anything out about that uh, during the First World War? Because they were clearly not Austrians, but they yeah. were part of the Austrian Empire. So so in this regard, uh, the Czechs in Texas would have been no different than Czechs anywhere else in the world. And that is um, that they had high hopes during World War One for, you know, there was a big anti-Austrian sentiment, even, you know, within the Czech, you know, Bohemia, basically. And um, they were all keenly aware of this international, of their independence movement, basically. And um, these were, you know, by the by the government in exile or by the, the first uh, Masaryk and some of the first guys that were in London during World War II trying to negotiate a country uh, after the war. And um, so, yeah, ethnic pride among Czechs in Texas, uh, you know, probably reached its height uh, right before independence, just like everywhere else. And, and of course, after the First Republic was founded and, um, you know, they, had, they finally, you know, had a country of Czechoslovakia and they could call themselves Czechs and people might know what that meant. And so the, the, these groups were founded, like the Czech National Alliance, which identified with the Czech cause in Europe. Um, this was supported in uh, among the Czechs in Texas, and and um, you know again in this time it became popular or widespread to use Czech in churches, in these fraternal organization, also in journalism. You mentioned the newspapers, um, books, and uh, just kind of the preservation of Czech music and other folk arts. Czechs and Moravians especially are very famous for their folk dances and folk music at their, you know, summer fests where, which involve a lot of beer drinking and that sort of thing and uh, sausage. And, and so, you know, a lot of this kind of got preserved and remained strong uh, until World War II, because that's the, World War II also saw the end of the, uh, of the first Republic and was a really bad time for Czechoslovakia. But after these, so after this time, we start to see Czech, Czech immigration decreasing. And we, you know, just to give you some numbers here in, 1920, we have almost 15,000 uh, Czechs, which are foreign-born Czechs coming in. Uh, in 1930, we have 14,000. And by 1940, we have almost half that, like, you know, almost 8,000. Well, this is and, two years after Germany has taken over, too. Yeah. And then, yeah. So then, you know, getting out of the country was much, much harder than it would have been a couple of years before. So this is, you know, this is like census data. Um, and, and basically, they're also asking... 
you know, who spoke Czech during childhood at home. So these are like really, you know, first generation or uh, very Czech American, Czech immigrants. So yes. altogether, the total number was around 60, 62,000 that year. So which had, you know, which were still speaking Czech as children at home. We're still speaking Czech in the household. You know, we see this dip in this immigration. I mean, that's that's all because of the Iron Curtain, right? Well, yeah. So that dip was actually because of the Nazis directly. And then. Um, but then after the Nazis. After, then it, after the Nazis. Right. So the thing is, there's not a big enough gap to tell in census data because the Nazis left in 45 and the communists came in 48. So the next census would have been 1950. So there is no, so 19, yeah. you know, 1940, there's Nazis, 1950, there's already communists. There's no, right. there's a three-year gap. Um, so yeah, there was a, a ton of refugees right at the end of the war, but then, and, and actually the communists didn't lock it down immediately and as fast as people think. So um, in the immediate years after the war, um, like I, I know personally of stories of people telling me about their their parents that were doctors going to Dresden uh, and helping people there and then coming back to Prague. And uh, so that was common. But then three years later, the Nazis, uh, the communists started to lock it down. Um, those who saw what was happening left. And then there was another huge emigration wave in the late 60s in Prague Spring in 1967. Yeah. And the communists again locked it down in 68. Um, they invaded from all directions. Hungary, uh, not actually the Russians. They they made sure everybody else invaded for them. <laughs> so East Germany, yeah. Poland, uh, Hungary. Um, uh, I can't remember who else, but a couple other countries, Romania probably. And they all came in, rolled, rolled into Czechoslovakia with tanks. And so that also stopped that emigration. So right at the end, you know, right before that was happening, people saw what was happening and they they took the opportunity to leave. Other people just saw that Amer that Prague was becoming more free. And so they stayed and then it got locked down again. And after after it got locked down that time, they were one of the most conservatively communist countries, period, f until the end. So um, that that made it difficult. They were much more uh, hardline communists after that than, say, Hungary or Poland was. Um, but, you know, let, so let's, that, let's yeah. also throw this in too, Travis, because one thing we didn't mention, uh, uh, going back a little bit further, in, in the earlier days before the Nazi occupation uh, uh, and uh, becoming the, protect, the protectorate of Bohemia, um, there was the, the the Jewish question. And uh, there were just a lot of Jewish families and individuals that saw the writing on the wall at just too late to leave um, uh, Bohemia and get out in time. Uh, and unfortunately, and this is one of the stains the United States has, we knew somewhat of that information and we decided not to let um, especially children, Jewish children come in from the Czech Republic or yeah. from Germany. And that that is really unfortunate. And a lot of them, uh, some of them were snuck out into into England, but most of them died in the, in the concentration camps. So we talk about that part of the immigration, the Jewish immigration that did not make it over to the United States. And that has to probably be said as well. They were also stuck, the survivors of the Holocaust stuck in and were trapped in the communist rule during those years too. And they didn't have it easy as well. No, uh, uh -uh. So if, so it, it, uh, the, when they say the Iron Curtain came down, it really came down hard for many of the, the Czech people. They didn't make it anywhere else to, to Europe or to the United States. Well, as the, the Czech Texan culture evolved, um, what are the defining characteristics of that? How, how did that, um, what did that look like? 
Well, two basic characteristics of the Czechs in Texas lying in the heart of their social structure, the extremely close-knit family unit that we see here in the Czech Republic is, is there in Texas, and the attitude towards land and the ownership of land and, 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 and how to work the land. The typical Czech farm family was largely self-contained economically and socially uh, a unit that worked well together, whose main purpose was to cult cultivate. Uh, settlements also often had the egalitarian social structure, uh, a characteristic that helps to explain the Czech's pronunciation of an, uh, pronounce, I'm sorry, uh, the Czech's pronounced enthusiasm for American democratic ideals. That, that stuff is, is ingrained in that, in, in that community, as you can tell. And communities became established and social clubs and started to become uh, uh, put together for the Czechs uh, and, and then, you know, be, then spread across the state of, of Texas. Uh, we have a, a something called the Sokol movement here in, in the Czech Republic that happened in the turn of the, the 20th century um, that kind of shows that the Czechs wanted a national identity. They wanted a, a cultural identity. I think some of that still carried over for the immigrants to Texas. Uh, the result of the, of the establishment of fraternal organizations such as the SPJST, um, and uh, it was known as a, in, uh, in English as the Slovak Benevolent Order of the State of Texas, was in 1897. And the KJZT, the Czech uh, Remeska. How would you well, say they're, this, Travis? They're, you, yeah, they're, give it a try. Czech, um, they're both Catholic organizations. So one is uh, the Czech okay. Roman Catholic Podporuitsi, Jednoto, some, something unity in Texas. And yeah, so they're both Texas organizations, like Tex, Czech, Czech, Texas, like Catholic, Czech, Texas, Catholic yeah. backgrounds yeah. in the 1880s sort of like and the 1890s. Knights of yeah. Mm. Very, yeah, the Knights of Columbus, that'd be a perfect example of that. Uh, Czech Catholic organizations for men and women, respectively, of course. Each of these organiza organizations grew out of a national Czech fraternal order, but split away to become Texas institutions of, of their own. Uh, the Czechs in Texas also included uh, free thinkers who were openly challenged all religious authority. That is actually a Czech DNA. Yeah, <laughs> that is part of this part of what it means to be Czech, but also generally their free thinking movement among the Czechs was much more less significant in Texas than it was in other parts of the United States, especially in the Midwest, where it's often dominated by Czech American culture. Uh, so th there was still was that connection of, of being a good Catholic, I'm sure. Uh, but to be a free thinker kind of would probably put some of those, uh, the, the dogma of, of religious thinking maybe to its test. But you have to understand Czechs. Czechs kind of always fought against the establishment because they were taken over for 500 years. You know, five, yeah. 600 years, people were always t telling them what to do as a for, as a, from a foreign entity. Yeah. Well, uh, it, that, that's what you're talking about there, the, the family unit and cultivating the land and the even the free thinking democratic principle aspect of it, <laughs> you could very much just be describing my wife's dad, my father-in-law, <laughs> because he's <laughs> his history and his life growing up and his political leanings all mesh with that 100%. Uh -huh. and so it, it's interesting to hear that from a historical perspective and be like, oh, yeah, that's makes sense. See where yep. that comes from. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and the so the SPJST, that's an interesting discussion point because uh, growing up, uh, spending my high school years in central Texas and my brother, you know, grew up in near in the basically in the heart of the this the the Czech area of Texas near, north of Taylor um the SPJST uh, there's an SPJST in just about every town between Austin and Waco uh there may wow. not be a, a VFW or a, a, a American Legion Hall or a Knights of Columbus Hall but there's dad sure an SPJST huh. I think he even a, he even had a prom there I think how, how um, do you how do you pronounce that uh 
P- SPJST. SPJST. That's how you pronounce it because no one can pronounce <laughs> Slavonska, whatever that is. No one can pronounce that. Slavonska. That is pod- something that, that is Slavonska Podporoitsi Jednatu Statu Texas. I don't see what the problem yeah. is. Well, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, it's sure. just the it's the it's the hall where the where the old men go to to have their their beers and where the you know where sometimes they'll have a a, a you know a, a prom or a um, some type of yeah, high school right. dance or something yep. for these tiny little towns. But it's yeah, it's the social gathering point. But I never knew that it was the 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 Slo- Slavic benevolent order of the state of Texas. Um, so there you go. Well, pretty, yep. pretty amazing. Well, you know, I think it's we've talked about that there are still a couple of Czech newspapers around. Um, we all, I think most people in Texas probably know somebody who has a, a Czech name or a Czech background, or we have some connection to that. Um, and there's a lot of pieces that are, are part of the Texas culture. But, you know, what are some other Way, things that are very Czech. I mean, outside of, of course, the, the magnificent kolache, which I think we can say is, you know, when I heard people talking about these cronuts coming out of New York, this fancy Brooklyn, you know, oh, we're in a mash of this. It's like, you throw that away. You can keep it. I'll take a kolache any day. Uh, no, what were what some of the kind of the, the cool ways that like the Czechs are part of us today in Texas? Yeah, sure. You know, you guys mentioned the newspapers. You know, I think I think that's just a, a great a great story in itself. But you know, I think there's a wealth of oral tradition or in literature that's also preserved in Texas, including stories and proverbs. I'm sure you guys have heard it. Maybe not even known it was Czech, but it's part of the life. It's part of the tapestry of, of living uh, in the United States, specifically in Texas, with this background and um, folk songs. You know, you know, we throughout the Czech Republic. Especially during the summer months, you can't throw a stone without hitting a special folk um, uh, oh, presentation yeah. someplace. Yeah. Um, a festival it's, it's, somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's another excuse to drink beer, which is yes. what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you drink, you know, one thing that's really kind of cool is that you, you'll get a, a, a boar, a hog, you know, what we call a pig, uh, a very angry pig. Yeah. All right. And you would get one, and you think it's not enough to feed a whole town for one of these festivals, but boy, it is. And so there's a connection between Texas, all right? We don't call a barbecue. God, you get slapped in the face, you call a barbecue in Texas, right? So, <laughs> so, right? I remember correctly being down there a few times. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have this, this pig roasting and you eat everything. I'm, I'm talking everything off that pig here in, in the Czech Republic. The blood is even used for for blood soup, right, Trav? All yeah. right, so, you know, every oh, the, bit of the pig is used. The knuckles are the best part. left. The snout. Yeah. <laughs> got to get the snout. Who's, who's going to fight over the snout, right? So um, those things, I think there's some things in common that that, that translate to, to, to uh, Texas life that we have here. But the music, the, the folk traditions, the dancing, uh, certain games that, are, are, that, that kind of go into uh, elaborate wedding rituals, of course. Um, there's one tra- wedding tradition that uh, if you bring your newly married wife across the threshold, you go into uh, the bedroom, there's two things on the bed. Or there could be one of two things on the bed. If it's an axe, that husband's going to be a good worker for the family. If it's a bottle of, of, of alcohol, then you know you're going to have some trouble. <laughs> so the, there's things like that that are traditions that kind of uh, that uh, stick around. I don't know if they stick around in Texas, but they are here. In addition to certain ethnic foods, there's you know the pastries we talked about. There's also some you know uh, well-known sort of uh, 
uh, drinks, uh, of course, that I'm sure make their way there. Um, Pilsner Uriquil uh, is uh, world-renowned for it uh, being uh, brewed in Pilsen. Uh, I think there's a, they, they have it in the States as well. That's your Czech Pilsner sort of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you can find that there as well. You know, in the beginning of the, 18, uh, of the 1960s, rather, uh, as part of the national interest in ethnic awareness, Czech ethnic festivals and celebrations became increasingly popular across the United States. Um, and in the 1980s, uh, Czech society, Tex, Texana, Česko uh, Pudvo, uh, 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 Texans of Czech's ancestry was formed to organize and celebrate these type things in Texas during the sesquicentennial and the role of Czechs in Texas history. Uh, Related projects include uh, compiling community histories, pioneering registries, family histories, all the great things you need for genealogy. I'm sure it was a big push during that time. So by we move ahead to the 90s, we talked about the SPJST and all these other great lodges that you said. I think it's great to hear that there might not be a lot in these towns, but you'll have one, some of these communities will have these these connections to Czech history, um, uh, which is great. That heritage really kind of sticks through. So I went to high school in Rosenberg, Texas, uh, for a couple of years. Moved around a lot growing up, but uh, while we were there, that you know, they have Czech Fest, and there are all of these festivals that are just all over the place. And I think we'll post a, an interesting. We'll post some links on the show notes to some of the interesting Czech Fests that happen around the state today, but. I, it's really interesting that there's this cultural piece of, I don't want to I don't want to use the wrong word here and say obscure Eastern European like traditions and history. But when I read the stories of the Poles that came to Texas, the women scandalously wore uh, what were called short dresses because they, mm-hmm. they didn't actually drag on the ground. They were just below the ankle. And we're scandalously long, you know, short, but all the colorful sort of the European, um, you know, like the St. Pauli girl, you know, kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> like That's all good, of the, yeah. the, the characteristic <laughs> dress that everybody thinks of for the, you know, these sort of these costumes and this, this idea of these festivals and stuff. And, and, but it's, it's not German, is it? Right. No, but but the but that folk tradition. So in Bavaria they wear lederhosen and a dirndl, and in Moravia it's called something else, but it's the exact same thing. And those dances and that that part of society does exist everywhere there. So I'm sure when it comes to the states, it kind of gets a little blurred. Uh, but but oh yeah, I mean, but see, as Americans, I just don't feel like we have nearly as many songs and dances specifically for drinking. Like that's you know what that is like true. break out the accordion and play but a song that is an American phenomenon. Drinking. Go to go to Ireland, Australia, Scotland, England, uh, Canada. True. I don't probably Canada. A- every other English speaking country has more drinking songs than any other type of song. That's just our fault. I don't know why. You know, start writing uh, drinking songs, people. Come on, you, you can blame <laughs> well, the, you can blame the uh, uh, pilgrims. All right, <laughs> that's, that's right. Puritan stuff right there. Is it, you know? is so, it all come back to the pilgrims for you guys? Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think. Uh, was it Sweet Home Alabama? People, a lot of oh, people yeah, sure. look at that. That's a drinking song. I mean, usually you're holding your beer up to the well, stage at, when it's at playing. At Oktoberfest but... in Munich, they actually sing a lot of English, like American songs. It's just not songs that we would think of as drinking songs. It's just like my Bonnie <laughs> lies over the ocean or whatever. No, no, well, I, well, I'm talking I, about. And they're like, all they're like... all holding up their liter glasses and singing with it, and you know that's a drinking song to them also. But you know, well, I want Maybe you to well, think about this, guys. We're talking about influences going uh, from east to west to the United States. 
What about from the United States to here? You know, it, it is surreal being an expat, an American expat living here. And you feel like, you know, I'm kind of homesick for the States. But then you, you might be invited to go to a concert and it's a Leonard Skinner cover band as people are yelling <laughs> Freebird. No kidding. You know, you know, you're going to an IMAX theater, you're watching the latest stuff in English with, you know, check sub- subtitles. Um, you know, it's it, it there's the differences aren't so much as pronounced as maybe they were before the the revolution, of course, or the early heady days of the 1990s when freedom was just kind of getting back into here. But um, it, it you know there 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 is a, a sort of a back and forth to be to have an American sort of uh, background or American sort of product is still considered a pretty lofty thing here to to emulate or to have. Um, it, sometimes it kind of makes your head, you scratch your head a little bit, Travis, don't you? When you, well, <laughs> when, yeah. you when you see that, I mean, uh, check, check culture today. So if, if you're living in Texas and if you have a beer for lunch and you bring your dog with you, then you're a very good Czech Texan. Then you are still yeah. authentic. And that's basically <laughs> it. I mean, that's, that's, you know, other than that, they're no different than Austrians <laughs> or Germans. In fact, well, Austrians what? and Germans have beer for lunch too. So <laughs> Since you guys have lived as expats and you've kind of done a lot of the research and you're you're steeped in it, what I guess the question would be is are are Czechs today aware of their connection to Texas and the influence they've had here? Yeah, that's great. And also what's like kind of the the opinion of Texas? Because you can ask us, we're just gonna tell you it's awesome. Right down <laughs> yeah, to the course, ground. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so um I, I Travis Travis, you go ahead first. Well, I, I was gonna say that that they're definitely they're hyper aware of the Czech American community as a whole. I I've never had it break and broken down more specifically by even by state. Like everyone's aware of uh, the Czech American community in Chicago, let's say. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've never even been to Chicago. I have no idea. But everyone tells me like, oh, yeah, I got, you know, be-. so, you know, my great grandmother lived there. And then th- my my grandmother went there during the Nazis and my mother went there or my mother, my aunt went there during the communists or whatever. And so it's all it's always being that community is being uh, revived with flesh, with fresh blood every generation, let's say, because of the tragedies in their history. Um, but now it's not. But it's still only, you know, 20 years, 20 years in the past, 25 years in the past. So it's still living memory. Um, people still have people still write letters. I mean, I, I have a good friend. Um, Pete and I have been out you know, for dinner with him. I was going to say drinking, but let's say for dinner. And uh, um, his grandmother uh, was a Holocaust survivor and then moved to New York. So he's he and his parents, you know, stayed in Prague throughout the communism, but they wanted to leave the whole time. And then after the communists left, they were like, well, why would we leave now? It's actually, you know, let's rebuild Prague. It's not so bad. And so they stayed. But he still goes to New York. He still goes to South Carolina, you know, and um to visit his relatives and he's never, you know, lived in the States. So that, so they are hyper aware. I don't think, I don't know how aware they are of uh, the role they've played in, uh, you know, founding or, or the influence in creating Texan society, let's say, but um, there is some superficial awareness. Absolutely. That, that there are well, Czech Americans. And, I, and I'll, I'll mention this too, you know, I, I, you can't see this cause we're doing an audio podcast today, but I'm wearing my, uh, my Texas A and M Aggies hat right now, uh, but <laughs> I, I, I will. <laughs> now I've, I've been to Austin, had a great time in Austin and San Antonio and Houston, and um, you know the the, the southern um, 
mentality of making you feel welcomed is is I think world renowned, which is a great sort of uh, import that we have for the United States. Uh, but uh, unless you have somebody that moved to Texas, then it, it, I would think probably the the deal of saying that Chicago would be more of a a connection to many Czechs well, here that would have that connection. Now, now Pete and I might have a bias too because we lived in Prague. Oh, you know, I lived in Prague. Pete lives in Prague, and the. Uh, Czechs from in Texas are from Moravia. So if you go to like Ostrava or Brno, then they there might be, yeah, then or, they might have yeah. a much more uh, heavy connection to Texas instead of like Chicago. Well, I'll t- I'll tell you this. It's a really real quick story about my wife uh, and her family. Um, they were from a small town in South Bohemia. Um, and uh, her great grandfather fought in the Czech Legion during World War One. Was trapped behind enemy lines in, during the Russian Revolution. Survived the war. Um, and her grandfather was too young to take part in the war as occupied Czech, which is fine because survived. But their their town in, in near Shumova, the national forest down here called Volinia, uh, was liberated by uh, Patton's Third Army. Okay, so here are all these GIs coming through. They they weren't allowed to go to Prague. If you remember your history, um, that uh, it was a deal between the the Russians that. The Americans and Eisenhower said, "No, we can't get to Prague, but we'll liberate West Bohemia." Yeah. So they liberated and Pilsen and stuff. But Pilsen, yeah. right, in that part of, of South Bohemia. So here, here's Patton coming through the through uh, this little tiny little town. Didn't allow the tanks to roll through; it would have destroyed the town. So they just marched through, and these GIs started meeting these beautiful Bohemian women. By the way, that still exists here today. <laughs> uh, the women here are just amazing. By <laughs> by the by, by the by, uh, but. There's a story that um, was related to her family that, <clears throat> excuse me, that this woman was taken back to Texas because this GI was from Texas, and the letters were written back, and it was kind of a sad story because she missed she missed her town so much, she missed being Czech so much there because uh, she felt a fish out of water. They didn't relocate to to these Czech communities, um, which was probably unfortunate for her because I think maybe the transition would have been better. Uh, but it was one of these deals post war that. Um, you know, she had a hard time living and they relocated someplace, I think in Virginia, but, um, uh, that happened quite a bit. There were a lot of GIs that married Czech women and brought them back to the United States. And, you know, um, uh, that transition might've been pretty difficult for some. Well, Texas is pretty big. You got to live in just the right spot yeah. for what, for what suits you. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, let's circle back a little bit and talk about music because sure. you talked about, uh, the Leonard Skinner cover band in, in Prague. Um, I'm interested to hear, I would be interested to see what Czech people think about so, the, inf- hold on, the, yeah. the, what, what the Czechs would have, uh, what the interest they would have in the chains and the transition in the influence that polka and Czech music has had in the development of Tejano music, which is a yeah. Mexican, uh, t- Texans of Mexican yeah. descent. Boy, you know, I that that's I couldn't answer that directly because um, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think Czechs are are that aware of it. Like um, that music is still played at at festivals, like we said, every every summer, everywhere. But I don't think they actually that they're cognizant of that. What I when you, as soon as you brought up music, what I was going to say was um, because of the because of communism, when the Velvet Revolution, when the Iron Curtain fell, it fell hard. Czechs instantly got their hands on anything they could, and they did not care about copyright. And they translated all kinds of songs into Czech (laughs) 
from everything they missed from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s yep. and put it on the radio. So it's in check and it's all at the same time. And to them, they call it post-communism music. So you hear a classic <laughs> rock and roll, you know, followed by- In check. Uh, yeah, followed by, I don't know, some rap song, uh, followed by something from the 80s in check, followed by, you know, some English rap song or something that is not censored and not, you know, <laughs> all the F-bombs yeah, there's, out there, there in the there, open. Yeah, there's nothing like going to a grocery store with your kids yeah, and hearing, there, you know, and there might be uh, a song with the F-bombs. That. Yeah, so, so the oh whole idea of genre <laughs> is skewed. There is festival music, and then there is pop music, which includes uh-huh. classic rock to gangster rap. That is all one genre and it is oh, all yeah. and it is all played on the same radio station because it is all now that is slowly changing. I got to say it's been 20 years. But when I moved there in 2005, I was just shocked, like by what was coming out the radio on every station. And uh, that yeah. that's what I think of when I think of, you know, the uh, what what influence did did American music have back on the checks. But um, yeah. I never thought about the Tejano thing like that's yeah, that's I, I'm not sure. That's, well, it's, that's so it's, Tejano it's, music would be the sense that you, you have some very common issues with this. You, you're going to have accordion music, you know, you're going to oh, have, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, and that, that's probably the baseline. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah. You could, so you could take in... Flaco Jimenez. You could take Flaco Jimenez, who is like the the king of the Tejano accordion players. He's. He's famous and he's from Texas and you could probably take him and drop him into any polka band in, <laughs> in Prague. And he would be, be just fine, fine because so, smoking, He'd yeah, be he smoking. grew up, so my, he grew up <laughs> listening to this music. My problem yeah. is, and this is a problem. I don't, I don't want to under, you know, under exaggerate this. I think this is a problem. And so I grew up in Munich and every time I hear beer garden music all the time, I live in the Bay area in California and I hear beer garden music. And when I hear beer garden music, that means there's a beer garden according to my upbringing, <laughs> according to my upbringing, I lived in Germany for 10 years. If you hear beer garden music, you're within walking distance of a beer garden and a liter of cold beer in front of you. Some chestnut trees, you know, the whole nine yards. And there are no false alarms. I've lived here. I've lived here eight months now and I hear beer garden music and I'm like, oh, you know, where is it? And I start getting thirsty and, you know, I'm looking for the chestnut trees and then a car, you know, like a low rider Impala or something rolls by and I'm like, what? That's not that. What? Where am I? And then I notice yeah. that it's actually Spanish words and I'm like, what is that? Is, oh, yes. Where's my beer? Well, there's a lot of. Well, it's and it was this interesting crossover that happened. I mean, it happened in a lot of the communities where. Uh, the Europeans and the and the Mexican Tejano culture kind of clash. And it was like, oh, not clash, but it, it sort of blends. And it was Blended, like, yeah. oh, yep. there's your folk music. Well, here's our folk music. Uh-huh. And, you know, we like we like the spirit of what you're doing. And we like that. So I'll, I'll get an accordion and I'll learn to play that. And I'll, I'll, I'll do this and I'll make it my own. Yep. And it's just like we talked about the language comes and sort of goes into a time capsule. But all of these folk stories, these folk songs, these other things, the th- some of this stuff moves beyond the culture and into other cultures and it, and it gets yeah. its own, becomes its own thing. So uh, I, well, I think it would be very interesting to see the re- if, if checks had the reaction you had to, well, to I, I heard, music. yeah, I heard an interview with Flaco Jimenez and he said that growing up, and I think Freddie Fender has said the similar things that growing up, he couldn't go to the white clubs. You couldn't go to the white dance halls. But the his, the the Tejanos could not. Right. But they could go to the German dance halls, and they could go to the SPGST and to uh-huh. the Czech dance halls, and they could they could dance there. And so that music influenced them 
because it was open to them. It was free to them and it was accessible to Pete, them. Pete, we, we got to ask yeah. Conco. So we, we actually know a folk dancer. We've had her on the Bohemian yeah. show before and everything. Uh, she's one of our colleagues at, at where we work. So we'll, you know, she, we'll ask her if she's, you know, if she's aware of that connection or because. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. If she, ha- maybe yeah. she hasn't heard See if it. She can it, dance to it. It could be she hasn't heard it, but if, yeah, if she, if she knows of it, then she knows. I mean, she's, she's a bright, she's a smart cookie. Yep. Yeah. This has been a great discussion. Um, you know, when I grew up, uh, this little town I lived in in North Texas had a beautiful painted Czech Catholic church. Um, and it was a tiny little white church, but it had these beautiful murals and these gorgeous st- stained glass. And one of my best friends, his name was Kohanek, uh, and another friend mm-hmm. of mine's name was Kuba, C-U-B-A. And, uh, so they were, they were Czech families who had, who had come up from central Texas and from, from the Midwest and settled in, in the, you know, Blackland Prairie. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and they, and they had this little church and, um, that it, that's that's a lot of the 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 heritage that, that a lot of Texans have is that that if, especially if they grew up Catholic is that they actually went to a Catholic church that was, you know, a painted Catholic church. So, yeah, and and I know Scott has you know, his family connection with the, with uh, the Czech background, and of course we all love uh, the we all love the Kalachis and and <laughs> it's the, the Spetzel Brewery. The, and of the course Spetzel the Spetzel, Brewery. yeah, the Spetzel Brewery, which is where Shiner's from. It's German and Czech influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I maintain that the chicken fried steak was actually a, a bastardization of uh, Spetzel and uh, Kurosel Ruski. That's right. Uh, yeah. Czech, Czech so, say, uh, what is it? Zizek. Zizek is schnitzel. Zizek. Yeah. Zizek yeah. Is schnitzel. schnitzel. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's a bastardization of that because beef is cheaper than it was cheaper it's than pork right. in the It's in a the, beautiful bastardization. It is. Oh, it is. Wonderful. It if is. you've never had beautiful, it. Beautiful, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, I think this has been an awesome discussion, guys. And and if you're uh, curious about the true history of Bohemia, if you want to know a little bit more about uh, the European story, definitely check out the Bohemican podcast. If you are curious about uh, alchemy, I it's a great podcast too. Got to check out both of their shows. Uh, we're, we're big fans and friends from the history podcasters network. And we thank you so much for coming here today. Thanks guys. Yeah, Thank you. So Texas checks or friends of Texas checks, go to the internet, send us your questions and comments. You know, if you want to know something about, uh, about the modern checks or the history of checks, just let us know and we'll pass it on. We can do some follow-ups, uh, Oh, I, I, I shouldn't mention that because I, I also host the History of Germany podcast. And, oh, that's true. And yeah. there will be, at if I ever get that far in the story, because I'm going kind of chronological and it's taken me forever. But at some point, I do plan on doing a, you know, looking at the, the German, the same thing, the German immigration patterns and that sort of thing to the United States and the German-American uh, sort of history. So uh, if you like this, that will be coming up, but who knows when. But, uh, you know... <laughs> We'll be on the lookout for that, and we'll uh, we'll try to drop in and uh, let everybody know when that one drops. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We need to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Go to Brainstable and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can find um, uh, why not follow us individually too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. I'm Scotticus. Yeah, Bohemican. And I'm Podcastnik. 
We know you love this show. We know you love Texas. And we know you love check things. So tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>